You meet someone, you fall in love. She's married. She manipulates you into killing your husband so you can be with her forever. She betrays you. Hey, it's happened to the best of us. Sounds like it's time for episode 97 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, you're not really anybody in America unless you're on TV, host Howard Kastner. Today, I'm happy to welcome back as my guest, film enthusiast and podcaster, The Vern, who has chosen as his film, The Dark Comedy, Best Van Sant's To Die For. Well, I have chosen Lucino Visconti's feature film debut, Obsessioni, both films about women manipulating men to commit murder for them. Sounds like fun. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. Also, for those of you who are regular listeners to my show, this is not the episode I was promising you from the last show. Because I screwed up royally on scheduling, the show with Derek Nguyen on hair and no regrets for my youth will be the next entry. And so I would like to especially thank the Vern for moving up his scheduled episode to fix this problem I created. So to begin, Vern, why don't you remind our audience something about yourself? Well, hello, and thank you very much, Howard, for having me back on the Pop Art Podcast. Uh, hi, everyone. I am the Vern. I am one of the hosts of Cinema Recall Podcast, hosted by me and my good friend, Ashley Urock. We just talked about movies we have fun conversations and sometimes i do episodes without her just finished up our season of david cronenberg films even though i think we're coming back for just one more later on in april for that very excited i do know that we got some new episodes coming here shortly with that let's get to your selection and that is to die for first some information about the film to die for is a satirical black comedy Released in 1995, it was directed by Gus Van Sant and written by Buck Henry, adapted from the book of the same name by Joyce Maynard, inspired by the true story of Pamela Smart. It stars Nicole Kidman, Joaquin Phoenix, Matt Dillon, Casey Affleck, Ileana Douglas, Allison Folan, Dan Hedaya, Maria Tucci, Wayne Knight, Kurtwood Smith, Holland Taylor, Susan Trailer, Tim Hopper, Michael Rispoli, Buck Henry, David Cronenberg, and Joyce Maynard. In a small town in New Hampshire, newlywed Suzanne is desperate to make it as a famous newscaster. She badgers her way into the local nothing of a station as the weather girl and hopes to make a splash by filming a documentary on some local high school team. As her husband makes increasing demands on her that would limit her ability to rise in her field, she starts an affair with one of the teens and manipulates him and his friend into killing her husband. Before beginning with the film proper, the first topic perhaps we should cover is that of what is called a femme fatale, with which both women are in these two films. I'll give you some information on that character first. A femme fatale is a French term translated as a deadly woman. The archetype has existed since time immemorial. In the Bible, we have Eve, Jezebel, and Salome. In folklore, we have Lilith. In Greek and Roman myth, we have Clytemnestra, Circe, the Sirens. In Shakespeare, we have Lady Macbeth. In history, we have Cleopatra and Matahari. It goes on and on. It should be noted that there is a character known as the Homme Fatale. They are usually in women in danger films in which a woman becomes involved with a man she thinks is one thing, but turns out to actually want to kill her all. What do you think is the appeal of the femme fatale? Oh, that's good. And I do know that in one of our seasons of Cinema Recall, we actually covered a bunch of Femme Fatales, which I believe you were on a few of those episodes. We right, did an episode. Uh, the, the Last Seduction and Bound. Yes, those were it. So I always figured a femme fatale is a woman who's definitely a lot smarter than the man that she is seducing. She knows what she wants and she just doesn't give an F about what happens. And she doesn't care who she has to screw over, no pun intended, in order to for her to achieve her goals. Linda Fiorentino in The Last Seduction or even like Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct, Barbara Stanwyck from Double Indemnity. One of the great Oh, definitely. Billy Wilder's greatest movies ever. They know they're using sexuality for their benefit. You've hit upon a good point there. There's something about them because they don't live by society's standards and they don't even care about society's standards. They're unbridled in their sexuality. 
you can have sex with a femme fatale, but you can't have sex with the good girl that you're dating. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find them interesting because when evil is so fun, and they are generally more interesting for the reasons that you say, there is some, something misogynistic about them. They, yes. exist, they exist so men can blame someone else for their shortcoming. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my fault. It was this woman enticing me, which is what Adam told God about Eve way back when. I wouldn't have eaten this apple except that Eve manipulated me into doing it. So that it's a way of resolving themselves of guilt. I also kind of think, too, that the femme fatale comments and satirizes and made fun of men's shortcomings as well. Yeah. They are there to sort of expose all the things that's wrong with a man. Like, a guy may seem very great to his spouse, seem like a nice guy, but she's going to pull out that side of him that is dirty and manipulative as well, because she's going to see the guy as the way she sees all men, as a guy that just wants a woman or a person for just an object of love. She's going to expose that to him. I think there has been a progression of how these characters have been portrayed in film, and we'll actually see that when we compare these two films. In the silent and pre-code eras, they were called vamp. Marlene Dietrich, Theda Barrow, and Greta Garbo tended to play them. But once the code came in, for whatever reason, they in many ways disappeared. Where they really make their mark is World War II and after, as women were forced back into the home after having so much freedom during the war. Something that the movie studios actually participated in. They purposely characterized women or made films about women that whose purpose was to get women back into the home and let the men have the jobs again. But Whoa. women had become dissatisfied with their place in the home. They liked what they were doing during the war. So if you're going to be rebellious, well, society said you had to be bad, and the studio said you had to be bad. And as more and more writers went to pulp novels of the 1920s and 30s, they found the perfect solution. A femme fatale, a strong and independent woman, but bad, not so much because she helped kill someone, but because she wouldn't be the sort of woman who was barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. They changed in the 1960s, and we'll talk about this more. But at this point, they were no longer just evil. As psychology and erotic characters became central to film, and as the strong misogyny entered movies as well, they became psychologically damaged. They were women who were crazy, criticized for something men wouldn't be criticized for, with a whip of... This is what happens when a woman tries to do a man's job. Why did you choose this film? I just remember growing up, I used to watch this movie quite a bit, actually. I, my parents rented this movie for the family to watch one weekend. because My mom worked at a video store, and she bought home movies. And my mom was always a big, huge true crime buff. And I know that she read the story, the true story about the uh, Pamela Smart who did this crime. I had no idea about that case. I know for sure that this was the very first Gus Van Sant movie I've ever seen. I know prior to this, he did George Store Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, and even Girls Get the Blues. Probably the first thing of Nicole Kidman that I really saw. I know I saw scenes of her in Days of Thunder and Far and Away. My parents were big fans of Dead Calm, but I like very much this faux documentary style that this movie has. And even prior to this, too, I knew that Buck Henry wrote The Graduate. I love Nicole Kidman's performance in this. It's kind of sad that she only got a Golden Globe win and not an Oscar nomination because I think this is one of the best roles she's ever done, Samantha Stone. And I just very much love all the cast of this. And I absolutely fell in love with Ileana Douglas during this movie. I clearly remember watching this movie with my dad. And my dad's like, oh, Nicole Kidman. Now that's the woman you want to bring home. I'm like, I don't know, Dad. I'm yeah. kind of going for the sister character there. Matt Dillon's great in this. Joaquin Phoenix, who I've only seen, I think, in Space Camp before this as Lee Phoenix. Got a great score by Danny Elfman. The comedy's great. And I just love the aspect of the whole notion about what people do to become famous, no matter what. Well, I first saw it when it was first released, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of my favorite films of the year for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. It's marvelously acted with an outstanding cast. The direction is excellent. At the time, I did have issues with the ending, and I have some new thoughts on the character Kidman plays as well this time around, as well as new issues with the ending, and we'll get into all of that later on. Do you have some favorite scenes? I should mention, too, it wasn't Samantha Stone. It was Suzanne Stone. Right. So there's just like little images right there. I love the sequence when Suzanne is dancing to Sweet Home Alabama with Joaquin watching her. I do love the sequence when she is at the convention. She's talking to 
George Siegel. He tells her about this woman that wants to apply. It was like a news girl, and she gives him a letter written by her station manager. And Suzanne just has no idea what's going on with that. I have a couple. I like the scene where Larry, the husband, relates to her his plan for their future. And suddenly Suzanne sees him through a small hole in the frame. And then also suddenly Larry is far on the other side of the room with this odd perspective. And Van Sant does this a couple of other times. It's this great camera angle. And then I like the sex scene where Suzanne finally gets Jimmy to agree to kill her husband. In some yes. ways, yeah, in some ways I'm going, you idiot, you're doing this just so you can get oral sex. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you believe it. They make it believable, and it even makes Jimmy somewhat sympathetic. I agree with that, too, because I know when I first watched this movie, when I was, like, 15 years old, I was very disturbed by the fact of this older woman seducing this younger person. And this is way before the whole MILF trope that's happened in movies older women seducing younger guys. Watch it again when I'm older. I can totally see why Jimmy would believe this. It's probably the same sort of trap that a lot of men online, when they talk to models and they join their site or their OnlyFans, they think that they're having like this legitimate relationship with this individual when the individual only cares about, hey, I'm getting money from this person. I don't actually like you. Watching that, you can totally see why he would be in love with her because in his mind, she didn't see him as just being another like scrubby teenager. He thought that she saw him as a legitimate person, and he says she was the only one to ever call me James. Everyone always called me Jimmy or Jimbo. He even says, too, I was going to become a baseball announcer because she said I had a good voice. And it's clear that he doesn't actually have a good voice for broadcasting. What do you think of the director, Gus Van Sant? Are you a fan? Do you have a favorite film? I did watch for the first time Drug Store Cowboy, because I've never seen that before. I know after I watched this movie, I did watch even Cowgirls Get the Blues because I was a big fan of that book by Tom Robbins. I did not like his adaptation so well. And then I find his no whole one career... Did. No one liked his adaptation. Okay. So well. <laughs> and I found his whole career is kind of weird because after this, he teats on Goodwill Hunting. He gets a bunch of awards, accolations. And then after he gets all this acclaim award for Goodwill Hunting, what does he do next? But shot for shot remake of Psycho, which I gotta admit, I didn't like it, but I liked he did it, because it is sort of a punk rock thing to remake a classic movie like that. It's something fun about that. And then I liked the movie Elephant. I've seen Last Days, I haven't seen Gary yet, and that's probably the last things I've seen of his, was more independent features. I've seen Milk, and that was good, that was more return to form. But he has like, all these different types of movies and topics. It's hard for me to pick a Gus Van Sant style. I think it just depends on the budget that he has for a movie. If it's a lower budget, it's going to feel very gritty. But if it's a higher budget, it's going to feel... Plus, he works with different screenwriters, too. So it's really hard to get a hold down on what his vision is. He showed me a Gus Van Sant movie from different areas. It's going to be difficult for me to say, oh, yes, that's totally a Gus Van Sant movie. Or that's a Gus Van Sant shot. To Die For is probably my favorite from his filmography. Still have not seen My Own Private Idaho all the way through, just clips of it. I don't know, do you have like recommendations that you can give to a person that's a very low cinema intelligence? <laughs> well, you seem to have seen all of his best ones, except for maybe one or two. Okay. Uh, one of them being My Own Private Idaho, and the other one being Malanocha. He was one of the directors who was part of the early rise of independent cinema, as the movie Jaws changed the way studios were making film. He is also one of the founding members of the new queer cinema movement, especially because of his first film, Malanocha, and then My Own Private Idaho. This was the time when diversity really reigned in independent film, as everybody of every background and gender was making films. And it was a very exciting time. I've seen quite a few of this film, and for me, his films tend to fall into two categories. And you mentioned that some were more gritty, so one is the more independent, edgier, darker films, like Melanocha in my own private Idaho, as well as Drugster Cowboy and Elephant, which I think is his finest film. And I love these films. There's something very different and exciting about them. They're very original. They bring out the best of his visual style and imaginative aesthetic. The others are mainstream films like Goodwill Hunting and Milk. I like both, but I find Goodwill Hunting familiar and unimaginative, a real crowd pleaser, predictable, what I call middle brow entertainment. I like Milk more, but there's nothing that special about it. 
style-wise, it's a fairly standard biopic. You said that Milk was sort of a return to form. I think it's the opposite. Elephant is more like a return to form. I don't know if he does these films to get backing, which edgier films are not, and it could easily be that. What I meant by return to form, I meant like Milk was much more return to him doing something more stylistically than Good Will Hunting, because Good Will Hunting always seemed like a project for hire feature. They could have gotten anyone to direct that movie, and it would have been the same exact thing. At least with Milk, he did something more with that that's more akin to, to Die For. Like, he didn't add any flair to it. I think you have a good point there. But since Elephant, and even before that, he now seems to have trouble connecting with the film audience. He spends a lot of time now directing for television. He did The Feud about the Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, making uh, whatever oh, happened. like the whole episodes of that? He did that? I think he did it all. Really? Uh, his next film is supposed to be The Prince of Fashion, based on a short story by Michael Chabon. And that's, it sounds interesting, so maybe that will be a return to these kind of edgier films that he makes. But some of his films lately haven't been very successful. True, I don't think that Gus Van Sant is really caring so much about financial successes. If he was, he probably wouldn't try to do a remake of Psycho after his big success of Google Hunted. I admire him for that very much. Yes, I think that's very true. And it is possible that he does some of these other films so they could get financing for the films that he does want to make. Mm-hmm. Die For is very postmodern, even postmodern in aesthetic. It uses a number of different visual and storytelling styles. He throws everything at it, including the kitchen sink. And he often seems to be winking at the audience. And it's not just the use of mockumentary techniques and Suzanne seeming to break the fourth wall, which we find out. She really isn't. It's the way the camera is very playful and over the place. For example, the scene where suddenly someone will be way far off with this odd perspective. And it's a mixture of storytelling style, sometimes very serious, sometimes very dark, other satirical. He uses every trick in the book, and he seems to be having a lot of fun telling the story visually. So I think it's marvelously directed, but the events in the story are awful. But his playful approach to it somehow makes it even more horrifying. It's like he's telling the audience, say, I'm only telling you the story this way because you want me to tell it this way. You're just as guilty as the people in the screen. And that's one thing I like about dark comedy. You're laughing and laughing, and then something happens, and you say to yourself, oh, this really isn't funny. Yeah, I think that Suzanne Stone is so much an interesting character because she's not a person you actually like, but yet you are still intrigued by everything that she does. And you do, in a weird way, want her to succeed. You want her to kind of get caught, but yet you kind of don't because you're just watching the fun of her manipulating people. And I even do like the sequence when after she does get arrested and she's set free because of some sort of technicality that happened in the case. Well, actually, we will talk about that later, but I'm going to strongly disagree with that. Okay, that's fair. The screenplay is by Buck Henry. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about screenplay? I very much like it. I like the fact that there's a lot of like fourth wall breaking in this. It reminds me a little bit of French New Wave material. Doing a story of this, it was just done in someone else's hands. It would just be a very conventional story. It would probably be done from Jimmy's perspective or even the young girl Linda's perspective and how her friend was manipulated and seduced by this woman. I love the fact that we have Suzanne just narrating mostly everything that goes on in this movie. And then we cut to other characters and their thoughts about the story and the situation. And I found that to be very kind of a cool thing. And I love the fact, too, that even the opening credit, you know everything that happened right away there. You know that this woman got this boy to kill her husband. And the tell sequence of that movie is absolutely great. Pablo Ferrell just I agree. That is a wonderful opening sequence. You know, movies can be really fun if you can get someone in who can do a clever or original opening sequence. He's the guy that designed the top sequences for Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, Buck Henry is credited on such films as The Graduate, Candy, The Allen, The Pussycat, Catch-22, What's Up, Doc? He was one of the major satirists of the middle class and bourgeois and elite of his day, mainly the 60s and 70s. His targets weren't Targets weren't so much political as many comedians like George Carlin and Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce were. He was actually much kinder. His targets were the uptight and conservative classes of the day, but they were fairly gentle in comparison to other writers. He grew out of the television tradition by writing for such shows as The Gary Moore Show 
and Steve Allen. And like many comedians of this style of comedy, he ended up doing Saturday Night Live numerous times. For a long time, he was the guest who had done the most. And then I think Tom Hanks overtook him. There's one thing he did that I think might shed some light on his ability to write this film. From the years 1959 to 1962, he created the character G. Clifford Prowse, the president of the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. <laughs> and he would go on talk shows, not as Buck Henry, but as Prowl, with the goal of clothing all animals to stop their being indecent. One of his slogans was, a nude horse is a rude horse. <laughs> he nice. played the part so sincerely, he was often taken seriously by interviewers and received letters from TV viewers who supported him, including unsolicited monetary donations. All the money was returned because there was no such organization. But this house lasted a long time. So he seems to have some ideas to how you can manipulate social media and the audience. That's fascinating. I do have some issues with Suzanne uh, okay. this time around because she falls into that new category of the film Vital who has psychological problems that invariably get worse or come about because she's trying to do a man's job. Her character was described as suffering from narcissistic personality disorder in the scientific journal BMC's like psychiatry. She's criticized, I feel, because she is a woman trying to get ahead in the media industry. She is ridiculed for what she does in the film, but in reality, she is actually doing everything one is supposed to be doing to get ahead. She does everything right. If she were a man, she would be considered ambitious and smart, not weird and psychologically damaged. So sure. I thought that was strange. But maybe because we already know the context of what she did in the opening credit, it's hard to not see her in that crazy light. At least that's how I took it. I never even understood why she married Larry. Yeah. There wasn't anything in it for her. And in real life, the husband moved with her to Florida and supported her to get her degree which would have been a reason to, to marry him. But you talked about the ending, and that was also problematic for me for two reasons. And I did not find believe how the charges were dropped again. Said it was because the wiretapping was entrapped. That's not entrapped. That is so ridiculously not entrapped. Okay. Uh, I don't even know why the writers thought that out as the technicality for getting her off. There might have been other things, but not that. Entrapment is when an officer in disguise, succeeds in getting someone to commit a crime they would never have done if they hadn't been enticed by the police. So wearing a wire and getting her to confess to a crime is not entrapped. It also doesn't mean she's off the hook. True. No, no statute of limitations on murder. She, she can be tried again if they get enough evidence. And then, yeah. when, and then when she says her husband had a cocaine habit, that was just so ridiculous. Well, Easy proof. So I just couldn't take those scenes seriously. I think she had to see that scene about her husband doing cocaine because you had to see the sequence when his parents, with them played by Dan Hedaya, who's great, had to see the new sequence so that he can trash the TV and we, the audience, know that she's lying because she's lying about many other things. I totally agree with you, too, that she now would gotten off scot-free for the whole entrapment issue. But I do think that she should have been at least arrested and put on camera and her to say that stuff while she's being arrested or questioned would have been even better. I found it's also undercut because this isn't how it happened in real life. So do you look up the case for this at all? Because I didn't really. I do remember it. Yes, there's another movie or two. But they're making this big case about the media and how her wanting to be famous and that she got away with it in the film and that somehow this is all relatable but in real life she was convicted of murder and she's still in prison sure she got a yeah. life in it. the teen that smart had an affair with received 40 years but was released in 2015 for good behavior in fact in real life all four teens who carried out the murder are now out of prison and smart is the only one still in and that's because all 14 i think turned state's evidence they made a deal and mm -hmm. she did so this criticism of the media feels a bit off for me if you have to lie about what happened in real life to make your point, then I think maybe you need to reevaluate what your point is. But Mike LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle makes an interesting point in his review. He said, the murder plot is a cheap turn that says absolutely nothing about the unique nature of Suzanne's ambition. She could be any kind of sociopath and plot to kill somebody. When to die for loses Susan's media obsession as its point of focus, it ceases to be a pointed satire and becomes just another fairly good black comedy about a deluded person. 
And I think he may have a point because once the murder is done, she stops focusing on using the media to forward her ambition. Yeah. I think that's the point, and that's where the plotting may go a little wrong. It's not what's driving the movie anymore. So the movie, in some way, loses track of what it's satirizing. If she had actually used her getting away with it as a way to move up the ladder, then you have real social satire of the media. That's fair. And, that is definitely a good point, Howard, and I didn't think about that before. And then I thought it was kind of a cool thing, too, because during the whole course of the movie, she's doing this narration about all the events that are happening in this. And then it's cuts and she's just making a tape and she's making a tape for this person to watch and she thinks that this is a reputable news organization and she goes to meet with this man having no idea that he's been hired by her husband's family to take her out i love the fact that they never actually show what happens he's like come on follow me i, I need to take you somewhere and then we find out he dumped her in the lake. At the beginning, some people gossip about, well, you know, the family's connected to the mob, and someone says, oh, that's just a stereotype. You're only saying that because they're Italian. And you go, yeah, that's not a nice thing to say. And then it does turn out they do have ties to the mafia. Yeah. They got this hired assassin. I should mention this before, but I don't want to do any spoilers at all. But one of my favorite sequences of this movie has to be Indiana Douglas ice skate into Season of the Witch yeah. as the credits fade. You see General's smile because she knows she knows that she's skating over Suzanne's body. Dancing over the dead body. The credit sequences at the beginning and end are really good. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite performance? Oh, gosh. I think Nicole Kidman is great as Suzanne Stone. She's a person who is very dangerous. You're scared of her. You're a little bit seduced by her. Find it funny. I also love Elena Douglas very much as the sister, the kind of like voice of reason. Wayne Knight is great in this movie, too. There's so many great roles in this movie. Each actor plays their character to the T, and it's fantastic. I can't pitch this one. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. So, yes, I agree. I think uh, Nicole Kidman does hold the movie together. This was one of those movies that established her as a major acting force. And she is a marvelous actor. She does have this screen presence to her. Uh, she seems to be one of these, do one for them and one for myself type actor. But she goes back and forth between indie and edgier films and bigger and more commercial production. It is a marvelous ensemble. I agree with Wayne Knight, played Newman on Seinfeld. He is really good here. Casey Affleck and Joaquin Phoenix in early roles before they became two of our finest actors. So whoever was the casting director deserves their weight in gold. Oh, 100%. The cinematographer was Eric Allen Edwards, and I think he is one of the MVPs of the movie. He and Van Zandt are all over the place in style. It has these postmodern pop culture colors, and the camera movements are constant and intriguing. Though he works a lot, he's mainly known for his Gus Van Sant movies. Oh, when I saw the name, that did look familiar. Didn't he shoot Drugstore Cowboy with him? And... Yes, and I think he did My Own Private Idaho, and I think some other things. And the music is Danny Elfman. And what oh, yeah. About Danny Elfman, that hasn't been said. The music here is very playful oh. and winking to the audience, just like Van Sant's direction is. It's just pitch perfect. Even the students, too, were uh, Suzanne is trying on clothes and that musical sequence of that i'm like yeah that's totally danny elfman in her review in the new york times janet maslin called the film an irresistible black comedy and a wicked delight and added it takes aim at tabloid ethics and hits a solid bullseye with miss kidman's teasingly beautiful suzanne as the most alluring of media mad monsters with that here's some more information about the movie it cost 20 million to make and made $41 million at the box office. So was a success. Nicole Kidman was nominated for a BAFTA and won a Golden Globe and a Best Actress Award at the First Empire Awards. And Ileana Douglas was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for the National Society of Film Critics. The film includes cameos by George Siegel, David Cronenberg, Arthur Joyce Maynard, and screenwriter Buck Henry. Siegel is a sleazy TV personality. Cronenberg is the, is the murderer at the end. Joyce Maynard plays Suzanne Stone's lawyer, and Buck Henry is the high school teacher. Oh. The filming was shot around Toronto, which is where David Cronenberg lives. So, you know, he was right there. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> this was Casey Affleck's feature film debut. Rain Phoenix, older sister of Joaquin Phoenix, can be seen playing a tambourine as part of Larry's band. She had, oh. she had previously starred 
and Gus Van Sant, even cowgirls get the blues. When Janice, Ileana Douglas, hears the news of Larry's Matt Dillon's death, she faints and lands on her arm, which is in a cast for the next several scenes. This was written to the screenplay after Douglas actually broke her thumb while horsing around with Matt Dillon. Gus Van Sant wanted to incorporate the entry into the movie. And at one point, Lydia says that Suzanne let her drive her car even though she did not have a learner's permit. New Hampshire does not issue learner's permit. Anyone at least 15 and a half can drive if accompanied by a licensed driver at least 25 years of age. Hmm. Yeah, I went, that's that's interesting. Yeah. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Obsessione or Obsession. However, first we're going to take a moment and listen to a promo from a fellow podcast. Do you like podcasts? Do you like movies? Do you have opinions about films? Maybe you should be listening to the Lambcast, the official podcast of the large association of movie blogs, also known as the Lamb. With more than 2,000 members, the Lamb is the largest collection of movie bloggers on the web, by sheer numbers. Every week on the Lambcast, a group of our members tries to pull the wool over your ears when we get together to talk about movie-related subjects. Sometimes we review new films. Sometimes we talk about older classics, and occasionally we go off in directions that the community just has to get off their chest. This weekly show has many themes that any movie buff can embrace. Don't be fleeced by an imitation. Find us at largeassmovieblogs.com or on Twitter at The Lamb. On Facebook, you can find The Lamb and Lambcast for connections to our latest shows. Join the flock. Welcome back. First, some information about the film. Possessione is an Italian noir released in 1943. It was directed by Lucino Visconti and written by Visconti, Mario Alicatia, Giuseppe DeSantis and Gianni Puccini. Based on the novel, The Postman Always Swings Twice by James M. Kane. So Kane is, is uncredited. It stars, and I'll do my best here, Clara Calame, Massimo Giroti, Juan Delanda, Dia Cristiani, Elio Marcuzzi, Vittorio Dusi, Michele Riccadini. A drifter stops at a roadside restaurant and gas station. He and the wife of the owner find themselves immediately attracted to each other. And when the drifter shows he can repair things, the owner keeps him on. But the drifter only stays because of the affair he's having with the wife. Eventually, the wife manipulates the man into killing her husband, and they take over the business. But will they get away with it? So how do you think the two films fit together? What are their, some of their similarities and differences? And what do you think of the pairing? Well, uh, I think the only connection that I can see between the two is that each story is about a woman who seduces and manipulates another person to kill their spouse. And that's kind of the only two connections I can see between the two. I guess what makes this movie different is just the way the perspective is. In the Die For, the perspective is all on Suzanne. But for Obsession, our main character in this is Gino. He's the one that we're following throughout this movie. Giovanna is a secondary character, and there's main sequences where we don't actually see them together. I had no idea that this was a retelling of The Postman Always Rings Twice. First of all, I started watching the wrong movie. I started watching another movie called Obsession uh, from 1949, and I'm like halfway through this movie, I'm like, huh, this really has nothing to do with what Howard was talking about. I think I might have popped on the wrong movie, and when I looked back at the notes, I'm like, yep. I did. It's a Sepsione, and so I go and refine it again and watch it from the start. I like this one, just not as much as I like to die for, just because I've seen The Postman Always Dreams twice, Lana Turner and John Garfield, and that's one of those film noirs that I know is highly regarded, a bunch of like film circles that I never really got into that. I still need to watch the remake with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lane. I don't know if it was the actors in this, but they just did not seem to have that sort of like chemistry that I wanted. Uh, I wanted to feel the passion and the erotic heat between these two characters. And there just was not that chemistry that I wanted to see in this. So that when they do decide to kill the husband, I just didn't feel their passion. I felt more of the passion between Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity. And in movies like this too... Whenever there's a crime committed, you are kind of like on their side. You want to see how they're going to manipulate the law, how they're going to get away with it. And a lot of times, too, Howard, I apologize. I just did not care if they got away with it or not. I think the movie just kind of runs a little bit too long in places. I think you make some good points. I think we 
are going to disagree on one of the major points, which we'll get into later. But one of the very interesting points you made is that for most film noirs, they're seen from the male perspective. So to die for, yeah, it's seen from the female's perspective. You don't get that very much. You do in The Last Seduction, for example. Mm-hmm. But most film noirs are always seen from the male's perspective. And that's a very good point in their differences. And you're right. The major similarity between these two is they're both about femme fatales who manipulate a man to commit murder for them. Once you have that similarity, then the differences become more interesting. You know, they're crime dramas, they're noir-type movies. But the aesthetics and themes are quite different. And it does show some fatales can be used in almost any sort of story or style of story. When did you first see the film? I think you've answered that just recently. Yep, just about two days ago. Because this is not a movie that was easy to find. I had to find it on some sort of like obscure streaming network to watch it for free. And I would easily try to rent it, but even try to rent it was difficult too because I usually rent stuff on YouTube. And I did find it on Amazon for like three bucks. My ah. And definitely tell it was a free channel because there was a very bad print. And I'm pretty sure if I saw like, a natural cleaned up version of this, I would, would enjoy my time a little bit more. Could be. I did see it on Amazon and it was a wonderful print. I don't know when I first saw it. Probably it was at some point as a rental from Netflix. Remember when you would order them and return them and order them and return them. I did like it very much. I think you do have a point that the first half for me is slower than I remember. I think it picks up in the second half after the murder. But... You're right, it is a bit leisurely in the beginning, so I do get that. I think it's a better version of the story than the American version with John Garfield and Lana Turner. And this is where we majorly disagree because Lana Turner was the terrible actor. Joyce was. I thought there was more sexual passion in this one. When they first see each other, it's just like raw sex and lust in Ossessioni. And I feel it was more earthy, more gritty. The Lana Turner, John Garfield one is much less working class, less gritty. She lives in a nice place. She has nice clothes. She looks absolutely beautiful and well-kept like she goes to the, the hairdresser every day. So I like more pre-neorealism approach to this with its working class background. But I do agree. For me, the first half is a bit slower than I remember as well. So some people do find it a bit slow. Do you have any favorite scenes? So during the course of the movie, Gino is on a train to escape. He has no money and he meets up with this other person. I name his name is Bangolo. It's the Spaniard. Spaniard, That's okay. What they, need. they stay in a hotel room, those two. In a weird way, I thought the movie was going to be a different story. I thought he was going to become more involved with him, and then they're going to do a twist where they take out Giovanni's character, and there's like the sequence between the two that I thought was very kind of sweet. They're in bed, they're talking about their dreams and whatnot. And I don't know about what the rules were of that time for homosexual content in that, but I kind of thought they were to have more of a sequence together. I do like there were moments when the two of them, after they committed the crime, they would argue and fight it with each other. I found that to be a cool sequence there as well. Uh, as much as I like the sequences between Ginovano and the Spaniard, I kind of feel like those sequences, although good, they kind of take away from the story itself between them, her trying to commit this crime. But mm-hmm. I kind of feel like some of the great action scenes of this are ones that could easily be removed from it. And it would have made the plot just a little bit more tighter. And I really thought that when Ginovana meets the Spaniard, I really thought that she was going to try to seduce him to take out Gino. And I thought there's going to be like double crosses and backstabbing across backstabbing. And I was going to be really into it. But when it didn't go that way. Well, it is interesting that you mentioned the gay aspect of it, because we actually will talk about that some later. Okay. So, it's really interesting and really good that you picked up on because you weren't the only one. I picked up on it this, this time when I saw it more than the first time, but I saw it a long time ago, so I don't really remember. I do like the scene where Giovanna and Gino meet and the sparks fly. I think there's just an incredible amount of electricity there. But I also like the scene in the second half where Gino meets the prostitute. Oh, yeah. And he goes to her room. And then the police start gathering, and he has to find a way out. He goes out the back and over the rooftop. This was uh, one of the most exciting sequences in it for me. It's one of those Hitchcock things where even though he's a murderer, you, you hope he gets away at this point. Are you a fan of Visconti's? Have you seen many of his films? You have to tell me what some of them are, because I think this might be okay. the only one I've it's, ever seen. The ones that are most respect this one, La Terra Trema, Rocco and his brothers, The Leopard, The Damned, Death in Venice. The main one I want to see that I haven't seen is Bellissima, 
which is supposed to be really good. He's made some others that haven't worked as well for me. Okay. He is one of my favorite Italian directors. I think he's one of the great uh, directors. He's not quite neorealism. This comes before neorealism. This was made during the war, and neorealism doesn't really come till after the war, but some of the elements uses here do set up neorealism. It's very realistic very naturalistic aesthetic uh, to telling the story. It focuses on the working and lower classes. It uses real-life locations, uh, things of that nature. Neorealism goes even farther because it came about after the war, immediately after war. In fact, what is often determined to be the first one, Rome Open City, was still made. The Germans, I think, were leaving the city or had just left the city. But when you don't have access to all the best equipment or to the studios, well, what do you do? Well, you shoot on locations, you use local people, non-actors, and you tend to focus on what's there. You use whatever you've got. And that's where it came from. This story reminds me of the Dogma 95 movement, just a little bit, using what's right. ever there, using like non-professional actors for scenes. So, yeah. But, of course, here are the two leads. All the actors are professional actors, and the two leads were well-known at the time. He didn't make a neorealist film called La Terra Truma, where he did use non-actors. Okay. But that was his last one. Then his films become much bigger and more ambitious, like Rocco and his brothers. The Leopard is one of the greatest Italian films. That's with Burt Lancaster. And he's dubbed, and I think his dub voice sounds better than Burt Lancaster's voice. And so, and White Knight don't work for me. Okay. Uh, so if you had to pick one of the other movies to watch, what would be the one I should definitely watch of his? The Leopard. The Leopard? The Leopard. And then the Rock- Leopard. Yeah, and then Rocco and his brother. Okay. Well, very cool. Yeah. I will definitely look to those later on. And this was made during the war, but it seems to take place earlier because there doesn't seem to be a reference, a reference to the war, not even an inadvertent one. Visconti had difficulty finding a project that the fascist Italian government would allow. He came across then a French translation of The Postman, Always Ring Twice, which had been given to him by the director, Jean Renoir, but then it faced serious issues after it's made. He adapted the novel with a group of men he selected from the Milanese magazine Cinema. These were film critics and eventually filmmakers themselves. They really helped push the neo-realist movement. But the movie wasn't what expected. I don't have the source for the quote, but the script at first had little interest for censors because on the surface it appeared to be no more than quote a melodrama with a message that crime doth pay unquote however it wasn't a simple murder mystery but a rather sleazy and realistic crime drama more raymond chandler than agatha christie so the fascist government and church authorities not only banned it they tried to destroy every print oh geez and visconti managed to hide a duplicate negative of it it did premiere at a film festival so Visconti thought, oh, okay, this is a state-sponsored film festival. I'm home free. But one account says that Benito's son and film critic, Vittorio Mussolini, fled the cinema screaming, this is not Italy. That's so funny just to hear about filmmakers trying to save their material. I just found it to be very fascinating. But after the war, since he hadn't gotten the rights to the book, because, well, you know, the war. Yeah. He couldn't get rights to the book. And MGM had made their own version the copyright infringement kept the film from being released until 1976. I think there are some other ways the films are similar and, and different as well. For me, they both feel more Greek tragedy than Shakespearean, and that in both, the characters are doomed by fate and not so much by their actions and choices. And to die for, she's murdered after she gets away with it. In Obsession, they have a road accident that parallels what happens when they murder their husband. It, it's God in the, both films that decides the final fate and not their own acts. They don't so much doom themselves exactly, but are doomed by outside forces they have little to no control over. Fair enough. Uh, and this relates to the title, The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is the title of the book that Ossession is based on, because it's using the postman as a metaphor for God or fate. If the postman rings once and you don't answer, he will ring a second time. Which That's what I, it was those days. I normally tell the postman always rings twice. I think Obsession... Obsession is a much better title, and I think that's what all the other remakes of that should have just been called, Obsession. In the story, first ring was faking the car crash, and the second ring was the car crash at the end. And as you die for, the first ring is killing the husband, the second ring is her own murder by the hired assassin. So if life doesn't get you the first time, it's going to get you the second time. In addition, Suzanne and To Die For exist in a world where there is no good or bad. She never feels guilty. Neither do the team. There's something about her that suggests she's mentally unstable, like Dan Christensen in Network. And Ossession, I think there's a feeling on their part that they have done something wrong, that what they've done is immoral, and it certainly affects Massimo. Also in Ossession, both characters are driven by passion and sexual love, mm-hmm. but they do love each other. Otherwise, Clara wouldn't work so hard to get 
Master Mode of Stay. She wouldn't care. She would just say, well, if you want to go away, go away. I've got everything I've needed. But in To Die For, once her husband is dead, Suzanne dumps her lover as well because she doesn't need any more and she was never in love with him in the first place. True. I was thinking that, but I was thinking that Gino is much more infatuated with another woman that he comes across more than Giovanna, but yet there's this uncommon bond between the two that even though he takes an interest in this other woman, he can't seem to escape from Giovanna. And well, you can definitely see that. It's too late. Once he meets yeah. the prostitute, then the police are on to him. Yes, and his fate is tied to Clara. He can't get away from it, but she's still willing to help him escape and take him back. I do think that the book and the movie do have stronger motivation for the murder. In those telling of the story, she wants to expand the business. She has okay. ideas for how to improve everything. Her husband doesn't want that. And then her husband says, I'm selling this place and moving away. And that's when they do it. Sure. So here it's more just out of lust. They just want to be together and have sex without any repercussions. Oh, 100%. She even says, too, in the beginning of the movie that she's married this guy for his money, has no really love. And maybe it's the first time that she ever felt real love and probably the first time she had a real orgasm in like a long time. He's in a situation, too, because he's this vagrant bum that's just go around from like town to town hasn't probably showered in days and yet she sees this guy and she's like yes i want to be with this guy i think it's one of those things too that after the fantasy is done then reality sits in and gino's like oh what have i got myself into you know especially after that crime he's kind of like the same thing too and i just the comparisons we can make between to die for and obsession is that the murder happens between both movies and the sequences of like passion. Like, right. After Giovanna's kiss is when you know they take his car off, and after Suzanne Stone performs Felicio and Jimmy, that's when him and his friends do the crime. That's a very good parallel too. In the book, there's also a crash at the end, like in the movie. But Frank lives, and Cora doesn't in the book. Mm, okay. Frank is then convicted of killing Cora and is on death row. He's actually telling the story from death row. Also in the book, I don't remember it's in the movie. The only way to show his innocence at killing Cora is having to admit that he helped kill the husband. So he's sort of trapped. You did mention the Spaniard, Ilio Mercuso. He is one of my favorite characters in the film. He doesn't exist in the book. And you're right. There are a lot of people who think he is a coded gay character. And some suggest he is a stand-in for Visconti himself, who was gay. And in fact, this may have been one of the reasons also why the government wanted to get rid of the movie. because of uh-huh. the, He is the moral compass of the movie. He's the angel to Carla's demon, both with a certain sexual charm. Yeah. The cinematography was by Domenico Scali and Aldo Tanti. It's perhaps the strongest work that they are known for over here. Scala didn't really go on to do very much, but Tanti went on to do some other major pictures as well as considered a top cinematographer in Italy. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said Sessioni, which also began the late Mr. Visconti's remarkable film career, may be slow going to the uninitiated, but its historical importance is not to be denied. Yeah. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. In Italy, some priests perform exorcisms on theaters after they screened it. <laughs> the original casting for Giovanna was the tempestuous Anna Magnani, but she showed up on the set several months pregnant. Visconti replaced her with Clara Hercalame. I don't even know what she was doing, showing up on the set instead of saying in telegram saying, I'm pregnant, I can't do this film. Ancona is 233 kilometers from Codigoro, the nearest large town to Bergano's Trattoria. Bergano must have been very committed to travel that distance to compete in a singing competition. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two that might interest our audience. I'm going to go with one that's probably an obvious choice for others. And it's one I just rewatched recently. I'm doing Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct. I really enjoy this movie. I think Sharon Stone gives a wonderful performance in this i know the movie got a lot of like backlash here and there to have some fun instead of listing films about femme fatales i'm going to list a few films with home fatales okay sure and to remind you yeah home fatales usually are in women in danger films where the woman falls in love with a man who turns out to be something other than who they seem so 1944 gave us gaslight directed by george kakar in which ingrid bergman married the suave charles boyer who turns out to have ulterior motives 
and marrying her. He tries to drive her crazy, giving the world a new definition of a word in the process. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, yeah. The stepfather from 1987 dramatizes a man who moves from wife to wife, seeking the perfect family. When perfection oh. fails, he murders everyone and moves on. Oh, Terry O'Quinn is so good in that. We've covered sudden fear on pop art before. In this movie from 1952, Joan Crawford portrays a playwright who marries a charming younger man, an actor she turned down for a role in her latest play. The younger man, played by Jack Plants, plans to kill her once he reconnects with a former girl. And one of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest films, Shadow of a Doubt from 1943, is about a niece who is happy to see her charming uncle after so many years not knowing he is really the merry widow killer. Oh, good one. And you know what another one I just kind of thought of when you were just making those suggestions as well, Howard, was Leave Her to Heaven. That is one of the great femme fatales. Jean Tierney. So what is next? What should we be expecting from you? Ah, uh, that is a good question, Howard. I do know that we are trying to work on new material for new episodes. I do know you can catch us live at the Parkway Theater Coming up on March 31st, we're going to be introducing the movie Tombstone at the Parkway Theater in Glorious 35mm and doing a fun trivia event for that. And then we'll be back again at the same theater April 6th to introduce the movie American Psycho on there as well. I do know that we're going to be doing probably a series about the early films of Michelle Yeoh. I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with screenwriter Jordan Trapier, where we talked Bullet Train and Trans-Siberian, two thrillers that take place on trains. The next episode will be with screenwriter, director, and producer Derek Naguyan, where we will talk musical hair and Kurosawa's No Regrets for Our Youth, both about young people protesting a war. Very cool. So with that, so with that Vern, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Thank you so much, Howard, for having me here. I know that the guests you have on this podcast are more cinematically literate than me, and I am very grateful and honored that you would have me back on your show again. Because I love the fact, too, that you got me to see features that I normally wouldn't watch. It's one of my favorite things about your show is that you kind of ease people in with the movies that people are familiar with, and then you talk about movies that people are not familiar with, you know, how they're connected, and it's a great way for all points of cinema to be seen. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate hearing that. You're a great guest. 